All right, Mercy Hill, uh, my name is Jesse, and I like to make it a little bit tense, a little bit weird at the beginning of these teachings, so I'm going to do that now. Everybody find a uh, partner. Turn to someone in the room. Find a, find a person. Go ahead. Go now. Yeah. If you're the odd man out in the row, don't worry about it. Uh, you can still think about the question at hand. Here's the question that I want you to ask the person you turn to. Would anything, and, and this, is, uh, this is pretty intense first thing in the morning here, would anything about your life change... If you knew you only had five years left on earth. Ready? Go. Pretty intense. How would you spend your time differently at all? All right, 20 seconds. Okay, same question if you had only one year, one year left. Go. Really think about it. Give, give it a go. <clears throat> We're Christians. We can do we can do this kind of weird thing. All right, we're going to tighten it up a little bit. Would anything change beyond that if you only had 1 month and you just you knew it? Would you spend your time differently if you had one month? In what way? Go. It's okay if the answer is no, if it's the same one year, one month. <clears throat> Okay, we'll go one step further. Really rev up your imaginations here. If you had one week left, would it change anything from your previous answer? Go. Go ahead. How would you spend your time? All right, let's wrap it up. The Making of a Leader. It's a, it was a book that, uh, that came out in light of research done at Fuller Seminary. And The Making of a Leader uh, revealed, it highlighted at one point, about how common it is that people and leaders in general, just humans, finish poorly. We know this to be true. Cognitive abilities aren't static. 
dispositions change over time, people change. CEOs, politicians, actors, celebrities, pastors, leaders, whatever. People drift. We know this to be true all the time. A few years ago, I met a pastor in Colorado. My wife, um, she's from Colorado, and we were thinking about moving to Colorado. This is years ago. And uh, I had a, a job offer from, from a pastor in Colorado. And it was a strangely lucrative job offer. And that didn't make me suspicious at all. I was like, blessings from the Lord. This is great. In my mind, uh, when I said blessings from the Lord, it was with a southern accent. And I was like, this is going to be awesome. Uh, and I fasted and prayed. And uh, I felt, for whatever reason, a very strong leading not to work uh, there and, and to, to not make some massive life change. And I found out years later that um, this guy was, this pastor was siphoning money. He, it was like a, a golden parachute ruse. He was, he was siphoning money from one church to another, embe- uh, embezzling and like $500,000 from a church. And all the while, he was having multiple affairs in his church. He was a really nice guy in person, really warm-hearted. But uh, the church imploded, and it was a really bad thing. But that's not like a weird story, which is sad. People drift away from their values. It's all too common. The stuff we live for, the stuff we fight for, the stuff we believe in, people drift. And because of this, it's important to keep our values in front of us. One way to do this is the exercise we just did. If you had limited time, which you do, if you had limited time, would it change anything? How would you live differently? Another way to approach this idea is what my buddy does. Uh, I have a friend who works with couples, and he has them come up with a sort of family mission statement. A few words. For him and, and his wife, they came up with community, simplicity, generosity, and honesty. And when I say those words, it's kind of like, oh, that's awesome. But if you were to actually live out some of those words, like, like honesty, for instance, there would be a striving that would take place, a, a pain that would take place in order to live out your values. You'd lose battles. You'd burn bridges from being an honest person over time. A well-known pastor uh, kept his values in front of him uh, when he, he was challenged by a leadership book that he was reading to write his own eulogy, which is a little bit morbid. And, uh, and he wrote this eulogy, and it became his legacy statement, which he still lives out today and greatly affects his life. Lots of ways to do this, to keep our values in front of us. What no one does is write down, I want to finish poorly. I want to become a shadow of myself and put my family last. And always take the easy way out and seek third the kingdom of God. No one does that, but a lot of people do. Keeping our values in front of us is important because we have a tendency to drift from what we value. We're nearing uh, the end of Acts. It's been quite the journey. It's been awesome, right? And uh, we're in Acts chapter 24 today, and the two prior chapters have yielded much excitement. Paul, has uh, he's played in chapter 22, he's played the greatest temporal card that he has to play, that he is a citizen of the conquering empire. He's a Roman citizen. So he's brought before Roman leaders and the Sanhedrin. Those are Jewish leaders. He's brought before them. It says in, in uh, Acts chapter 23, right in the beginning, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin. That's the sort of council of Jewish leaders. And he said, 
My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Things are heated. Uh, This is actually pertinent because a lot of you guys have asked, Jesse, what do you do for a job? What is your job? This is actually part of my job description. If Tommy gets mad at someone, (laughs) I do what he says, you know? So people are very mad at Paul, and uh, it gets so bad that in verse 12, it says, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath to not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. That is terrifying. If you're Paul, that's straight up scary. Forty guys have have vowed not to eat until they kill you. This whole Jesus thing for Paul is getting pretty bad, pretty messy. And the Roman commander in charge of this heated situation, what he does is he gathers a small army and delivers Paul somewhere else. He said he rallied a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea with Paul to be taken safely to Governor Felix. So in Acts chapter 24, that's where we find ourselves today. Paul is before Felix and the Sanhedrin again, and they bring down a famous lawyer, Tertullus to host their trial because it didn't actually go well last time. Paul sort of outsmarted the situation. And the trial begins with absurd flattery. Tertullus says this to Felix, We've enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order to not weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Lies. Felix had a brutal reign, and the Jews knew it at this point. Tacitus, a Roman historian, uh, describes Felix like this. He said, Felix was in the position of a king, but ruled like a slave, implying that he was unruly and violent. He had a bloody trail behind his rule. So the Sanhedrin perjured themselves from the beginning of this trial, and they continued to lie about what happened. Tertullus implies that they simply seized Paul. They, were, they just seized Paul and had some formal charges against him. More lies. It's not what happened. And Felix knew this. Felix already knew this before the trial. In Acts chapter 23, Lysias writes to Felix that Paul was seized by the Jews. The Jews were about to kill him. But I, this is Lysias, I came with my troops and I rescued him. Felix already knew before the trial. So Felix knew that Tertullus's, this lawyer's, uh, that his flattery and that his account were hogwash already. All of what I'm sharing right now in Acts chapter 24 is just to introduce you, and, and so you get to know Felix, this character, this guy, letting you understand him. So Tertullus, the, uh, the Jewish lawyer, goes on. He describes Paul in the Greek uh, as loimon which uh, when he says Paul is troublemaker, really that, that means pestilence. In other words, The Roman Empire is healthy, and Paul is bringing disease. Paul then offers a fourfold confession about what he and every Christian believes and what went on. Felix hears all this, and he does what most people would do in this situation. Felix does nothing. He's got a Roman citizen on his hands. A Roman citizen had rights, and a Roman citizen who didn't get those rights, that would make trouble for Felix with Rome. 
And at the same time, he's got a lot of Jewish people on his hands, very angry Jewish people on his hands. And he knows that very angry Jewish people on his hands in the past has caused revolutions. And when you're a governor and you have revolutions, you're in trouble with your boss, in this case, Rome. Remember Pontius Pilate? The ultimate reason that Pilate allowed Jesus to be crucified was just because he wanted to pacify the Jews. He was afraid to lose his job. Listen to this. Uh, This is verse 22. Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit him, uh, sorry, permit his friends to take care of his needs. This whole verse is hilarious because days prior, Felix already read from Lysias this in verse 29 of Acts 23. I found, this is Lysias writing to Felix. Felix read this letter. He already knew this. He said, Lysias said, I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. So Felix knows this is just about the Sanhedrin. This is just about their theological theological security and that Paul is innocent. So Felix says, I need to send for Lysias and then then I'll figure out what's going on. He already knew what was going on. And guess what? He never sends for Lysias because he already knew. He never sends for him. He was like Pilate. He was convinced of the testimony of the accused but was afraid of the Jews. So what does he do? He does nothing. And he pacifies his conscience with this. He ordered the centurion, which is one guy over a hundred other guys. He orders all of these guards to be over Paul, to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit him, his friends, to take care of his needs. Thanks, Felix. Thanks for being such a great guy and protecting protecting the innocent. And having, uh, well, for you to not make a decision. <laughs> he didn't have to make any decision. And he, he kind of feels like, I did the right thing. I'm keeping him under house arrest. I'm not putting him in the dungeon where people typically in the first century died and the second century died. And guess who else visits Felix? Not just, or sorry, guess who else visits Paul? Felix. Not just Paul's friends, as Felix said, but Felix, the governor, this guy, visits Paul and brings along his wife, Drusilla, for two years. Paul is under house arrest in Felix's house for two years. Felix is visiting him under house arrest that his friends may provide for Paul's needs. What a fascinating guy. So Felix was formerly a slave. Uh, So was his, his brother, Paulus. Paulus happened to be friends with Claudius Caesar. Under Paulus's request, Felix is set free from slavery, just like Paulus. And Felix is placed with this in, incredible, under this incredible authority, with this incredible authority. He's placed as procurator, as governor of the Jewish people, of the Jewish world. So he's got a fascinating backstory. Drusilla, his Jewish wife, was about 18 years old during this story, during Acts 24. And she was the daughter of King Agrippa I, 
who we read about in Acts chapter 12. This was the guy eaten by worms for his hubris. And uh, Felix usurped the attempts of, his, of, uh, of Drusilla's father to have a prearranged marriage, meaning King Agrippa I had a prearranged marriage for Drusilla, and Felix usurped the attempts of the, the, of the suitor by bringing in a sorcerer who convinced Drusilla that uh, Felix was the man. So Felix uh, became her husband. This was his third marriage. I'll just pause for a moment here. I love that, uh, that we can reference secular history in light of our worldview and with our worldview. Because our worldview is rooted in human history. Don't take that for granted, Christians. <laughs> Not every worldview is. If you're here and you're like maybe new to the faith, know that you are surrounded by a group of historians. We as Christians... We believe that our worldview actually happened in human history. And so we can read about human history and how it speaks of and interplays with the Bible. Isn't that great? Isn't that cool? I just love that. All right. So this couple, Drusilla and Felix, they decided they want to hear from the Apostle Paul and visit him about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 24 says, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus. And he did this for two years, you guys. And he did this with Paul. Paul, who was the ideal instrument for Felix and Drusilla to hear the gospel. So Paul was a Hebrew by birth, a citizen of Rome, and he studied in a Greek city. He was the ultimate weapon for Felix and Drusilla to hear the gospel. Worlds converged within Paul. Hebrews gave us humanity our uh, moral categories. The Romans gave us our legal categories. And the Greeks gave us our philosophical categories. In a word, the quintessential ideal for the Hebrew was light. The Lord is my light and salvation the light of the world. For the Greeks, it was knowledge, episteme, to know. You have to know. The Greeks gave us our academies, our universities. For Rome, it was glory, the glory of their cities, the glory of the Caesars, the rulers. And there was this man, Paul. The Hebrew world, the Greek world, and the Roman world converged within him. And he's speaking to Felix Hellenistic Roman ruler with his Jewish wife overseeing a Jewish world from a Roman throne. And they're speaking with this guy who speaks of the, of the divine and Christ like this. Paul writes this of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. He was the ultimate weapon for Felix to receive the gospel. So it's no wonder that their interaction, Paul and Felix, was like this in verse 25. Paul spoke, Felix was afraid. The prisoner is causing the captor to tremble. In the Greek, it's shuddered. Felix trembles before Paul's account of the gospel. 
So Felix was compelled to feel something, right? Something got through. And it's just what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would convict the world of, would prove the world to be wrong about what Felix dearly needed to receive revelation about. John 16, 8, Jesus says this, when he comes, and this is, this is Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will prove to the world to be wrong, or sorry, he will prove the world to be wrong, to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. And what does Paul talk about with Felix? Verse 25, Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. So here's God's standard. You have to live up to it. If you don't, you get judged because you can't live up to it. Jesus Christ took the penalty, paid your judgment, and offers you righteousness by faith. So Felix is feeling it. Something is getting through. He's, he's shuddered. He's trembled before the gospel. And what is his action step? to his internal feelings about hearing the gospel. It says, Felix was afraid, and he said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. So Felix is a procrastinating, people-pleasing, sexually sinning person who's emotionally impacted by the gospel and well acquainted with Christianity. That's right. Well acquainted with Christianity. Verse 22, it says he was well acquainted with the way. So who are we in the story? Are we the hero of faith on trial for our public ministry? Perhaps some of us. Are we a disciple turned Sadducee turned Pharisee turned all too legalistic with embellished constructs? about scripture? Maybe some of us, but most of us in this church in particular are probably more like Felix. Hedging our bets, listening when convenient, betting on yourself or the world, and also putting some stock in God. A pattern of non-decision in our lives, not planning on overt big sin, but, you know, seeing what happens. Sometimes, perhaps, we treat church like a conversation with Paul. I'll come for you when convenient. And when truly confronted, when truly challenged and confronted with our sin, how much of us feel and say, that's enough for now, you may leave. In the trial of Acts 24, there's a legal decision that Felix has to make. And there's also, really, this is, this is a story about a personal decision that a man, Felix, has to make regarding Jesus. And it's a tragedy. He forfeits the opportunity. How many people have had the Apostle Paul live in their house for two years? And how many years have we done something very similar with the teachings of Jesus in our hearts, allowing Christianity to gather dust. How many years has self-control and judgment to come for some of us? Been ideas that you say, I will send for you, I will, when convenient. And maybe we go, maybe it's not as static as I'm, as I'm talking about it. Maybe, maybe we go in and out of this. Either way, it's a tragedy of a kind of life. 
to live like this for our days, like Felix, because we know. Most of us, when faced with the question, who is Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? We know. Was he liar? Was he lunatic? Was he embellished legend that accidentally changed the world and all of human history? Or was he Lord? Those are the options. Seriously, after church, if you have more options, I would love to hear. What do you do with Jesus? Most of us know, we know. His teachings aren't from around here. They are divine. Jesus, you are the chosen one of God. You are the anointed one of Israel. What you taught is for our lives, all of our lives. Your values are the way to live. Outside of your values, King Jesus, there is only destruction. We know. If you don't know, I truly pray that you have an encounter with the Spirit of God that you know. If you're hung up intellectually and you don't quite know, but you almost know and you almost can believe, I pray that you have the right messenger come along in your life so that you know that Christianity is historically, intellectually, philosophically, philosophically consistent beyond any other worldview or lack thereof worldview. And its values are the way, the truth, and the life. I thank God that Jesus showed me the way of how to live. I wouldn't have come up with uh, honesty as a value for my life or sacrificial community as a value for my life by myself. Jesus showed me. He injected light. He injected the Judeo-Christian ethic into human history, a human history covered and darkened by sin. He fulfilled all the law's requirements. He lived perfectly, never drifting. The cross, the resurrection, the ascension, eternal rule all came about because Jesus lived perfectly. He lived out perfectly the values of of heaven. And in perfect obedience, he ushered in a new kingdom. And without this new kingdom and its values, and without this king, for me, there would be no boundary on Jesse's fascination and fixation on my own truth and my own upward social mobility. That would become the entire worldview for me. I know that. Jesus gave me real values, not of my own making. And I know it's not as easy as saying, all right, we like Jesus, generally agree with him. So, okay, do it. We know it's not that simple. We don't automatically just do the values that we want read in our eulogy, so to speak, because of the drift, the flesh, the liar. And we procrastinate on what we actually value. So how can we become victorious like Jesus? Or are we doomed to be like Felix? Are we doomed to be like 16-year-old Jesse before Jesus gave him the first good idea in his whole life? Are we doomed to be like Solomon and just drift? We're weak, we're tired, distracted. One of my favorite songs that I came across in college by a band called Sleeping at Last, it goes like this. uh, Just when we think there is a chance, there's never quite enough time to prove our beliefs, to prove that we're strong. We just need some sleep. We need some time to clear our crowded minds. 
replacing love with doubt and helplessness. We just need some sleep. We need some time to catch our breath. You ever feel this way? Some of you are like, that's the truest thing I ever heard. <laughs> I'm just tired. <laughs> like, I, I believe and with the values and like I believe with the arguments or whatever that you're presenting, but I'm just tired. So what is the answer? How then do we live out the values that we profess and even at this point involuntarily believe in? How do we live out those values? All right, here comes the Bible. So buckle up, you know. First, if you haven't, and a lot of us have, but if you haven't, repent. Concerning righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. If you haven't repented before God, repent and admit, I don't want what is right. I, uh, I don't have the same values as you, God. I've desired sin. I do what is wrong, and I can't save myself. Save me from destruction, Jesus. Forgive me. Come into my life. Take hold of it. If that's you, man, make time with the prayer team today. Like, the prayer room is back over there. Not illuminated, but uh, there's a sign that says prayer room. <laughs> like now or when we start singing at the end, just run back there. This is the, there's nothing more important than this decision. Nothing. And if you run back there and there's no one to pray, just like be like, hey, there's no one to pray. Pray with me. You just got to do it. If that's you and, and you're like Felix and you're like trembling before the idea and the concepts of the gospel and you've heard this stuff before and you haven't repented before God, just do it. Nothing is more important. This is the first proverb in scripture, verse 23. Repent at my rebuke. Then I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make known to you my teachings. But since you refuse to listen when I call and no one pays attention when I stretch out my hand, since you regard, sorry, since you re disregard all my advice and do not accept my rebuke, when calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you, then you will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but not find me. They will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. Since they would not, not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruits of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them. And the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. Maybe you are well acquainted with the way, and uh, perhaps you know what it is to be fearful of God, or even to have a deep, meaningful moment of repentance, and you got stuck along the way, procrastinating on something. Maybe, uh, maybe you make room for your faith sometimes when convenient. Maybe today was a convenient enough day to come to church, but you're feeling like, Jesse, enough for now. Away from me. Shut up. <laughs> I totally get it. A lot of us have taken on a posture of, uh, with church, like, uh, entertain me. You're waiting for the right sermon or the right uh, song or moment to be moved or the right amount of trembling or feels. Many of us, though, have been given the revelation already. Paul has been in your house, so to speak, 
for years. And you're stuck in this tomorrow. Surely tomorrow. But what have we learned, church? Y'all sinners. What have we learned about our sin and about our addiction of all kinds and procrastination? Because we've had practice. We've learned that the flesh is not satisfied when you feed it, right? The machinery of the flesh always wants more, and you know it by now. So what are we filling the void with? You don't have to say it out loud, but you should repent of it, even now, at this place in your faith. What are you filling the void with? Fast food? It's not sinful. I mean, I don't think. Tobacco? Porn? Infinite television? Your phone? Human admiration? Your career? Again, not all that is like mortal sin, but a lot of it has to do with how you're using it as dissatisfaction in your life. So what are you filling the void with, and has it worked? No, it hasn't. You know that. Now you need it more. And your will becomes weaker. And you become more chemically dependent on it. And fathers, happy Father's Day, by the way. (laughs) Don't just teach spiritual procrastination to your family. Don't teach, it's not that big of a deal. That's like, I mean, it's really a human thing, but that's like a classic guy move. It's not that big of a deal. I've heard so many guys process their addiction and they're filling the void like that. That disposition doesn't capture or teach that your body is a temple of the living spirit of God and that what God calls sacred is sacred. If any of this is relatable, if the Felix archetype right now is relatable in any way to you, my challenge is this. Do whatever you can to make yourself like a sail unto the wind of the Holy Spirit and strive to do so and receive prayer to do so. Lots of prayer to do so. Make yourself available for God to get to work within you. Galatians 5 puts it like this. This is the Apostle Paul. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So Paul is like, come on, let's do it. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 9, I strike a blow to my body, and I make it my slave, so that I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Philippians 3, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. So our will has something to do with it. I don't quite know. I can't parse that out for you. But our will has something to do with it. We are culpable for our choices. Give God as much of you as you can to work with. Resistance to the flesh is part of the Christian life. Do you guys hear that? Resistance to the flesh, it is part of the Christian life. Not not wanting it. Some of us, we feel utterly defeated 
When we feel like we want something like borderline sin or overt sin, we just feel defeated. That's like handing the enemy a bazooka. Well, I want it, so I might as well do it. That's an insane lie. Painful resistance to the lies of the flesh is part of the Christian life. The moments where we don't feel like doing the kingdom value that we believe in, that we would do, or that we say that we would do if we had a very short number of minutes on on this earth left. The moment where we don't feel like doing the kingdom of value or what God calls sacred, but we do it anyway. That is such a huge part of life on earth as a Christian. Exercising that we do have will, that we're more than instinct, that we're different than the bird and the dog and the tree, that we can reason and that we truly do have a will. And that we play a part in how much we let God in. So this morning, I'm just using Felix as the archetype here. Let God in. Let him show you victory over sin and death because he can't do it alone. And don't decide for God that you have no will. And that you're waiting on God to like illuminate any will at all. Like, meet him in the middle, sort of like the prodigal son. Like, come back home. The father is waiting. Verse 16 of Acts 24, as Paul addresses Felix, he says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. May we make ourselves available to the spirit of God. May we strive to walk in step with it. I'll end with this. John 15, 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. This is Jesus saying, come on, remain in me to his disciples as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Let's pray.